Beloved, uh, open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes 4 if you haven't already. That's page 555 in the, in the Bible in the seat back in front of you. And as you turn there, have you ever considered, I have a question, have you ever considered that there is always one person that you are thinking about, like at all times, and it's yourself? We think about ourselves all the time. Trivial things like, what are we having for lunch? And major things like, what am I even doing here? <laughs> right? We're constantly thinking about ourselves. I, I read in an article this week that the brain's resting default position is to think about the self as it deals with all the external demands that are brought upon it. There's some other research out there that suggests 78% of the content in human conversations involves talking about ourselves or our perceptions about other things. Now, honestly, that seems a little low when you add the social media platform, which is constantly about the self and posting your thoughts and opinions about what's going on in the world. Now, I know there's some altruistic things out there on social media platforms and whatnot, but by and large, we love to talk about the self, which is kind of fascinating to think. If 78% of what we talk about is the self, think about how that works out in a conversation with another person. You're constantly talking about yourself with the other person as they're talking about themselves. We even like try to relate like, oh yeah, here's my experience in that. My, my point in all of this is that we are self-centered people. We are me people. Uh, that is really the point of what the preacher is hammering home here. Now the preacher so far has sought to prove that all is vanity, all is meaningless. He's looked at wisdom, he's even looked at comedy and time and politics, and he's, he's brought about the meaninglessness of it all. And today he's kind of ratchets down the microscope a few clicks, and he begins to peer in the human heart in regards to relationships and our consideration of other people, really our consideration of ourself as well. In our text today, the preacher is driving home the point that it's wise and it's beneficial to live well amongst other people. Uh, we need each other. God has made us for companionship. Uh, we are better together, so to speak. In Genesis, we see that the only thing that God really created that he wasn't entirely pleased with was the fact that man was alone. He said it's not good that man is alone, and so he creates a helper from his side. Companionship is at the very heart of our God. And, and the preacher is helping us today, kind of reorienting our minds and our hearts to a better way. Now, God is not mentioned in this particular passage that we're going to cover, but I want to remind us that the fear of God that was, that was talked about in chapter three that Justin preached a few weeks ago is still in the context. We're to live in the fear of God. To trust him, that, that's really what fear is, is to believe God, to believe that he's real and to live accordingly. And so we are to live out that way. Uh, we've been learning in the book of Ecclesiastes that we are to enjoy all of life, to enjoy our toil, to enjoy our food and our drink and, and all of this. And today, 
He's saying you're also to enjoy one another in community with each other. And this is what God has intended for man. So the the main point of the passage is, is this. At least I think it is. This is a hard text, but I think this is the main point of the passage. It is better for us to share our lives with other people than to be consumed by envy, individualism, and power in all we do. Now, ultimately, we're going to see that there's even a better way. And that's where we're going to end our service today. That's where we're going to end it on Jesus, no doubt. But for the sake of integrity, as we walk through this passage, we're going to look at kind of three separate sections. And in each of those, the preacher kind of highlights the value of companionship. He kind of hits it from different angles. And in addition from hitting from different angles the value of companionship, he also kind of splits our hearts open. And he shows us as he probes our hearts to all the ways that we mismanage friendships and companionships. He kind of hits us at the very core of of who we are, our our self-centered reality. And this is supposed to be a help for us. We need to know uh, who we are uh, under the sun and why we need God. And and we need to be reminded of uh, the, the importance of relationships We need to be reminded of our inner motivations that uh, oftentimes we don't see at first glance. We need to be reminded of the good of community and the dangers of isolation and how we should even work and how work has effects on other people. Uh, We're going to see a common phrase in this passage, and it's the phrase better. Uh, Verse 3 from last week and and 6 and 9 and 13 from today, the preacher highlights that there is a better way to live. It's the way of wisdom, the way considering a neighbor. So he kind of provides two paths, uh, considering each other and living together in community, and that's the way of wisdom. And then the other path is the way of folly, thinking about the self all of the time. And we are hopefully encouraged in this passage to live the way of wisdom, the the better way. Uh, We want to drive at the idea to live for the person next to us, to the person who is in your home, to the person who is at your work, the person who is in this church family that you might not even know yet. That's what we're kind of driving at. But it's not just that we're better together, by the way, but being about others actually kind of reminds us or actually guards us from sin of isolation. And so that's kind of what the the preacher is doing here. So we're going to have kind of three sections we're looking at. And the first one has to do with work and toil. The first point is this. Find contentment in work and considering the warning of envy. This is verses 4 through 6. Look with me in verse 4. Then I saw that all toil and skill in work came from a man's envy of his neighbor. This is also vanity and striving after win. Look what the preacher's doing there in verse four. He's connecting envy to the motivation of why one works. Ultimately, because we're envious of our neighbors. That's what is driving the reason that man works. It's a subtle sin, but it's a dangerous sin. Envy is a state of ill will towards another person when uh, someone else is being recognized or, 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 or is achieving certain things. It, it allows us to grow in jealousy and anger, 
all of which stems from perceived advantages that we think that others have over ourselves. It reveals distresses uh, that we have uh, when other people are rewarded, and it really kind of just knots up the soul. And you know what I'm talking about here. We've all been there. We've all been envious people. Well, we're happy for someone when they uh, have achievements, but deep down, we're struggling because we ultimately are thinking about ourselves and how we're not receiving the credit or the notoriety that someone else is perhaps uh, uh, receiving or what we think we might actually deserve. And not getting what they got actually makes us think less about ourselves. That's what envy, that's what envy does. And the same is true with the downfalls of rejoicing, or excuse me, when uh, walking with someone who is suffering, when they've lost something or, or something has slipped out of their hands or they didn't get the job promotion that they want. We're, we're quickly there to comfort them. But if we were honest, sometimes we rejoice because in some twisted way, it makes us feel better about ourselves. That's the reality. That's what the, 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 the preacher is driving at here. I remember when I was playing college baseball at the University of Oklahoma my freshman year and uh, playing from the bench, let me just say that. But I was always cheering for the Sooners, always. But I remember, this is so twisted. The person starting before me when he, he kicked the ball or made an error or struck out, there was always this this little part of me that was a little bit excited that someone might think better of me and less of him. I kind of came confronted with that this weekend as I was thinking about this. And that's the reality. That's what envy does. It drives us to want to beat the competition or to speak evil of other people, to criticize them while being nice to their face. It just keeps us from having relationships. And if we were to take the book of Ecclesiastes in its totality... The irony of all of this is if we were to get all the things that our neighbor gets that we're envious of, it's all vanity. It's not going to satisfy. And so the very things that we want are not going to satisfy us. I read one author who kind of brought up an old quote that says, any friend can share your sorrows and failures, but it takes a true friend to share in your joys and successes. There's work envy, there's family envy, there's social envy. Yes, there's even church envy. We see it everywhere. So let's be honest with ourselves this morning. Let's allow the Spirit of God to open up our heart to see where this specific sin might be tucked within us. David Gibson, who has, uh, wrote a great book on the book of uh, Ecclesiastes, he has this incredibly powerful quote. It says, if I envy you, through loving you, because I love you only to get something from you, then not only am I engaged in oppressing you, I have a cancer that eats at my heart and can destroy me as I destroy you. This is because I have dressed up my selfishness in generosity and deceived both us in the process. Have you ever asked yourself, what is the motivation behind all your work? everything that you do. Why do you do it? 
Is it the fear of man? Is it because you want recognition? Is it because you are envious of other people? The preacher is saying that all this work, all this toil, the kickback that our hearts desire is to get everything back for ourselves. That's what, he, that's what he's saying. And so he challenges the reader in verses five and six to stay away from two massive ditches that we could fall into through the sin of envy. The first one is laziness in verse five and the second one is busyness in verse six. The fool folds his hands and he eats his flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls full of toil and striving after wind. Verse five is really talking about the sluggard. The, slug, the sluggard folds his hands and he eats his own flesh. Some would call that a hand sandwich. That's terrible. The sluggard in Proverbs is the sluggard from Proverbs who doesn't work to prepare for winter. A, a man with no drive, a man who doesn't get up in the morning. I'm not talking about a man who works hard and doesn't make a lot of money. I'm talking about a man who doesn't work. It's the slacker in Proverbs 6 who, who thinks he is wiser than seven sensible men. He, he, he proves ultimately that he hates his neighbor, that he doesn't consider his neighbor because he only gets from his neighbor. He's looking for the charitable neighbor, the one who will give to him, but never gives back in return. And the sluggard proves alone at the end. And then the preacher warns of the one who is busy, verse six, better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls full of toil and striving after wind. Notice the busy person grabs two handfuls of toil. And this gives us kind of a, a picture of, of, of greed and a, a frantic pace. And yet look what the preacher says, in both hands, as he grabs for these things, he actually has wind. He has nothing, it's, it's, it's meaningless. This is like a dad who works all the time and when he's home, he's checking his emails. He's always busy, always answering the phone, always uh, on call, so to speak. These people are so busy flying around from one thing to another, hiding their unhappiness with the world and always complaining about how busy they are hoping that tomorrow will be better. And it never is. Living for a hope that really doesn't exist. And if I could be really honest about this. Thinking about the Christian ministry, uh, pastors, just thinking about my own life. Uh, pray for us that we would not be so busy to carry on our own names, but the name of Christ, trying to do everything all the time, trying to, trying to meet all the needs, tempted to be messiahs ourselves, thinking not that we are actually omniscient or omnipotent or omnipresent, but thinking and operating as if we are. That's a, it's a danger, grabbing these two handfuls. We are not the Christ. I am not the Christ. And I have to remind myself of this, and you have to remind yourself of this as well. Uh, it's really, it's vain to, to grab this life by two hands. We're, we're called to fight this temptation. We're, we're called to a, a better living. But if we're honest, this is what we do. We just put both hands in it and we try to get everything we can from it. But look what he says in verse six. He, he actually describes a better way. 
Better is a handful of quietness. One handful of quietness is better than two handfuls of toil. The preacher is describing a content person here in verse 6. One who works hard with one hand and yet it still enjoys all the blessings of life. All, all the friendships and the relationships that he has. This is kind of the picture that he is painting. He, he wants the person to be dedicated to the vocation that God has called them. We're called to work. We're called to work hard in this life. But we're not to grab it with two fistfuls. Uh, we're also to balance it and be able to enjoy it with other people. So the work that we bring in, we also get to enjoy with the people that are around us. Now, he's talking here about a quiet person, someone who's not boasting in achievements, someone has, who has set up big, beautiful, bold boundaries in their life to live as they work hard, but also a balanced life, to enjoy life. So they find joy in their work, but they also find joy in giving and sharing their, uh, everything with their neighbor and enjoying their neighbor as well. And this is the content person. And we have to learn contentment, do we not? We, we, this is something that is a process. And I think Philippians 4, uh, 11 through 13 should all encourage us that the apostle Paul himself had to learn in, uh, contentment. Listen, listen to what he says. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I learn that in whatever situation I'm to be content. I know how to be brought low, meaning he knows how to be poor. I know how to abound. He knows how to be rich. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all these things through him who gives me strength. Contentment leads to a quiet, satisfied life because we're satisfied in Christ. Whether big paychecks are rolling in or you're on your third night of leftovers, this is the quiet life that he's kind of driving at here in verse six. There's a brother in this church, I'm not gonna mention his name, but I was recently talking to him and he's at that age uh, and stage in his career where he's being noticed and he has opportunities to kind of flourish in his business. Uh, Bosses are coming to him and, and, and bringing notoriety to him and, and the prospect of financial gain and, and uh, upgrades in his job that would bring influence. But the brother is acting wisely. He, he's saying, hey, I love this, but I don't want all my work to control me. I don't want it to be the only thing that I do in this life because he sees the value of friendships and of his family and the needs of his family. He recognizes that his children will only be in his home for a few years. He sees all the ministry needs here at the church and he wants to be a part of that in the days ahead. This is the picture that he's driving home in verse six. One handful of quietness and one handful of work. Which one are you from verses five and six? I, if I, like I said, if I'm not really careful, I'm the guy that puts both hands in, okay? Just know that that is the sin of your pastor, okay? I, I would ask you to seek to, to know where you struggle. Consider your boundaries. 
consider uh, how you think about work. Consider how you think about family and friends and how you enjoy time together. Uh, Jeremiah Burroughs, a great Puritan. I love the Puritans because they're dead and I trust dead men. But <laughs> listen, listen to what he says. Contentment is not by addition, but by subtraction. Seeking to add a thing will not bring contentment. That's, what, that's the lie we buy into. Instead, subtracting from your desires until you are satisfied only with Christ brings contentment. This is our reality. And now the preacher kind of moves us into the realm of friendships and relationship dynamic. That's our second point. We want to pursue companionship in this life and avoid the dangers of individualism. So here the preacher provides some basic observations of friendship as well as some warnings for us. And I, I, when we see warning in the scripture, I, 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 let's take heed uh, of those warnings. Look with me in verse seven. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no, uh, who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. So we've just talked about the working bee who neglected his family and friends, but now he's talking about someone who worked so hard that never made the time to have friends or never made the time to have a family. This guy is so busy, so successful that he's completely isolated himself from all others and cares only of himself. He's driven by accomplishments, money, and in the end, he leaves nothing to anyone else. So he made it to the top of the stairs of the corporate ladder, but he's by himself upstairs. That's the guy, feast at his banqueting table, and the first two people he invites are about their business only. The one who owns the field, he's like, I have to go tend to it, I'm sorry, I can't attend. And to the other, he's like, I just bought five oxen, and I, I've gotta make sure that I manage them, and then they're working. They're so busy that they're not about their father's business. Constantly acquiring, constantly building for themselves barns and storehouses and, and bigger barns, like it says in Luke 12. But they've never listened to the fact that their soul is demanded of them tonight. But verse nine tells us that there is a better way. Two are better than one, the preacher says, because they have a good reward for their toil. toil. The preacher gives us some valuable components of companionship. It's better to work together, the preacher says in verse nine. With other people, two are better than one at producing and sharing in the reward together. That's essentially what he's saying. When you, when you work together, you get more and you get to enjoy it more and then you get to give more. Franklin D. Roosevelt once said, I am not the smartest fellow in the world but I sure can pick smart colleagues. It's that idea, it's good to work with people. This is a blessing. And in fact, it's God's genius. It's not man's genius to work together. We are isolated, selfish individuals if we're already trying to establish. It's God's genius. You might remember Moses did not wanna go back and uh, uh, to be a part of the delivery of Israel, but God provides Aaron who could speak. 
Uh, Moses could not shepherd all of Israel, but God provides 70 elders for him to come alongside. This is why we believe in a plurality of elders here at the church. One, because it's biblical. You never see elders singular in the New Testament. But working together preserves our elders' heart, making sure that we're kept from danger and also gives us more opportunity to care for you. You see this also in your places of business, with your coworkers, with your business partners. It is better to be together than not. I, I could not shepherd uh, my children without the helpful guide of my wife also recognizing that there's so many different circumstances in life and, and that God meets the need for that uh, if you're a single parent and whatnot, but just overall generally recognizing that God helps us out by providing other people. And you know this conceptually when you think about your places of work. And so what he does here is he provides kind of three examples in verses 10, 11, and 12. And, and look at that first one. For if they fall... One will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has no one to lift him up. I think constantly about the widows who are uh, in their homes and, and need help. This is why we have deacons. This is God's provision through our deacon ministry to care for widows. Physically, people fall and they need help. And he's, he's bringing out that physical example right here in the text. But if we were to sit on it a little bit deeper, we also know that he's referring to spiritual needs that we have. We need the help of others. That's why we, that's why we have a church. This is God's genius plan, that we would live in community together. We cannot do this alone. We must have the church to bear burden, to confess our sins to, to remind each other of the gospel. What a, what a blessing. When's the last time that you thought about the church as your blessing from God to dwell together in community? We need each other's help. In verse 11, he goes on. He said, again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? He's talking about the comfort of friends, uh, the ministry of presence, I'm sure there's an application for marriage there as well, but I think he's driving at something deeper, that we need to be comforted one to another. I, I remember sitting in the hospital eight, uh, a day after Abby Ruth, my little girl, um, had open heart surgery. It was a huge thing. Uh, and I just remember weeping before the Lord, uh, wondering what her life would be like, wondering if she was gonna survive, uh, just feeling the weight of the moment for my little girl and realizing I couldn't do anything about it. I remember that I had a friend next to me who just had his hand on my back, just rubbing my back while tears came out. That's the ministry of present. That is a comfort in time of need, one who will keep you Warm. I love the movie The Notebook. I'm kind of a rom-com guy. You remember that great part? She's on the beach and she's like, I'm a bird. And, and he's, like, he's like, if you're a bird, I'm a bird. And I, I know it's silly, but it's helpful, right? Because that, if you're in pain, I'm in pain. We weep with those who weep. We mourn with those who mourn. We rejoice with those who rejoice. We celebrate with our brothers and our sisters. We need to comfort each other. 
this is an application for all of us, especially for the younger generation. Uh, for those in D now, uh, uh, you are going to be tempted to try to seek community online. Uh, we, it's everywhere before us. Uh, and in fact, we're heading somewhere called the metaverse. I know nobody really knows what that is, but we're, that's where we're heading. But here's the reality of that. A like on your Facebook page or a little message or, 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 or whatever it is, a message from a person online in some online community is no, it doesn't compare to, to embrace, to the, to the power of embrace, to the, to the weeping with a friend to the bearing of a burden, to the rejoicing in church together. It just doesn't compare. And so what we want to do is we want to be near each other as we bear these burdens together. And it ain't gonna be found online, I promise you. I'm not saying online platforms are bad. That's not what I'm saying. Be like Blair said this, I didn't say that. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is it doesn't satisfy it, we weren't made for it. We were made to be near one another. And look with me in 12. And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him, and three co a threefold cord is not easily broken. Bottom line is this friends provide a defense, companionship provides protection. There's, there's, there's safety in numbers, you've probably heard it said. And three is even better than two, is what Solomon is saying. So we have each other to bear one another's burdens. This is why we went through a, church, a series on the church. We don't want to neglect to meet together. There's safety in numbers. This is, this is why it's not good for a brother or sister to be alone. This is why our heart grieves if someone leaves the church. If they go to another church to receive the word of God and care, wonderful. If they just leave the church, they are in danger. And it's our responsibility to go after them because a threefold cord is not easily broken. We, we need to think about our brothers and sisters in this way to move towards each other with this in mind. Think about the prodigal son. He, he went and squandered all of it and he ended up eating with the pigs by himself alone. Man is not intended to be alone. Judas never consulted anybody in the 12 about his plan to betray Jesus. When isolated and operating by the self, it's a dangerous place to be. So we need to take the counsel of the preacher and recognize that there is danger apart from community. And we think to ourselves that there isn't. I, I'm just encouraging you to crush that idea, crush that idea today. We must be together. You were made to live in community, to care for one another. This is what is wisdom to the preacher. And Remember this, community, and just a couple of warnings for us. Community doesn't mean that you live life with people that only look like you and have interests in the things that you have interest in. There's actually a real great danger in that. Uh, we are from all ages and stages and countries and commonalities with, or, or excuse me, with one commonality in, in mind, and that is King Jesus. 
He's the one who levels all of us, who helps us all realize we actually need the king. And then we get to learn to love and need one another and care for one another. I love what Bonhoeffer says because there's just this danger in all of us that we go to community seeking only to get something from it and never to give towards it. And listen what Bonhoeffer says in Life Together. The person who loves their dream of community will destroy community. But the person who loves those around them will create community. That's profound. Go into community. The next time you go into your groups or your ABFs or whatever community you find yourself in, seeking to consider and love one another. And then finally, he, the, kind of the third category we, we end at is, is simply this. We want to be humble uh, in leading and taking caution of power. This is the third category is leadership. And he ends with a parable, and, and listen to this parable. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, and though in his own kingdom he had been poor, I saw all the living who move under the sun, and along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place, there was no end of all the power, all of whom he led. Yet those whom came later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and striving after wind. Now, like I said, this is a parable, and it's an odd way to end it. And you're like, what is going on there? I'm going to explain it in the simplest way that I possibly can. There is an old king, and he was foolish because he did not take the advice of the other. We see this in verse, uh, of anybody else. We see this in verse 13. He, he was successful, and it got to his head. Uh, this is the guy that fell in love with his position, that didn't leave his position, who surrounded himself with yes-men and stuck around too long. And this proved to be vanity and unhelpful. He isolated himself and he was disconnected from his people. But then there's a better king we see in verse 14, and he was poor and he was young uh, and he went from prison to the throne. Maybe, maybe Joseph comes to mind for you. Maybe you're thinking about that story. He is wise because he takes the advice of others which is implied from the text. He's an up-and-comer. He, he's an innovator. He, he's, um, he's kind of a people's king. He knew poverty, so he, he knows what it's like to be a commoner, and yet here he finds himself in the throne, and the people love him. But it's only for a while, because the people that come after him, they don't even remember him. And, and so the, the reality is this. He is not a king that is ultimately gonna satisfy the people. Uh, we see the vanity of these leaders. They're different vanities. One is isolated and alone, and one's popularity is only for a time. But we see that neither one of these kings can ultimately satisfy the people. The people need something different. They need a better king than any of these kings. And, and we see throughout this kind of, these passages of scripture that we really don't understand community. We really, we really think about ourselves far more than we think about the person next to us. I hope you feel the weight that the preacher is trying to drive home that you yourself cannot satisfy community. You, you, you don't have what it takes to get it accomplished. And neither do these kings as the story unfolds. Everybody is replaceable. Nobody can satisfy community. 
except one. The Lord Jesus Christ. The King of kings whose glory never fades. He came from a a manger in Bethlehem to the throne of thrones, which is surrounded by angels and fire and lightning as revealed in Revelation 4. Isaiah 9 says, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with, uh, with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. There is a king who satisfies. How does this king, though, connect with the passage that we're talking about today and in terms of relationships? Two primary ways I see this king connecting with this passage. First, he brought us into covenant relationship with God. He brought us into covenant relationship of God. Remember, God is a relational God. This is who he is. He's moved towards us. He's the one who brought covenant fellowship to Noah. As the earth is being destroyed by the flood, he brought fellowship to Noah. He initiated redemption. Uh, uh, with Abraham, that through Abraham, he's gonna be the father of many people and he's gonna be their king. He, he gave the law to Moses and he established the nation of Israel and he said, this is my son. Our God is relational. And then he made a promise to David that, that there's gonna be a king, a shepherd king who's gonna sit on that throne forever and his name is Jesus And we see that he is revealed in the New Testament. And so how did Jesus bring us into this covenant fellowship with God? Well, listen to what it says in 2 Corinthians 8. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty we might become rich. So Jesus has come and he has reconciled us through his blood. And Romans 5 says that, While we were still weak, the right time Christ died for the ungodly. That means this, Christ died for the envious person. He died for the sluggard. He died for those of us who are busy in our work. He died for all of us in our self-centeredness, our self-absorption. He gave himself up for such sinners. And through his power, listen to this, he relocates us under the reign of his grace. And through his power, he changes us. He himself changes us into tender comforters. He changes us from, and moves us from self-centeredness to selflessness. It's impossible to accomplish all the things that Solomon instructs apart from Christ. It is God who does this through Jesus. He delivers us from our, in our individual ways and in our individual sins and he forms us into a people, a holy, a holy race, a royal priesthood, like it says in 1 Peter. And this is the church. So it's, Christ who goes and he gets the individuals and he brings them and he makes them a community. He makes us the church. He emptied himself as we see in Philippians 2 and and we take on this same mindset. And, And here's the second thing that Jesus allows us to see. He teaches us to love others. 
He's with us in this, and then he teaches us this. So quietness, contentment, companionship, humility, all of these important relationship things that we've talked about today, they find their yes in Jesus. He's the one who's knitting this together. He's the example of it all. And so we can enjoy our work because we see that Christ works hard and then he teaches us how to rest by finding isolation with the Father. We can be intentional with our relationships just as Jesus is intentional with his relationships. He set aside 12 men that he discipled. He he taught us what healthy relationships with the opposite sex uh, look like with Mary and Martha. We we see what true discipleship looks like with Peter, James, and John. He, He gave himself to so many And we learn this from Jesus, what it looks like to carry one another's burdens, what it looks like to admonish, rebuke, and restore. This is the infinite power of God to deliver us such sinners. This is the great news. This is the good news. We should be all standing up and rejoicing right now. Because everything that we're supposed not to be is exactly what we are. And then Jesus comes, he reconciles us through his blood, and he makes us a new people who are able to do these things faithfully now. Quickly, as we close, three quick ways I want us to respond today. The first is this. We must know God. We must know God. Not about God, Now talk about, we must know God ourselves for he alone renews our hearts. If you were ever at a beach and you saw a man standing on the beach who made the sea to split and you could see the ocean floor right in front of you, you would fear that man. You would fear that man. Well, God has done this and he has done so much more. He has made all things, mountains, galaxies. He has made us. We are called to know him, to fear him, to recognize him, and and recognize that he is with us. He's a God who dwells with his people. I recognize that sometimes this takes the faith of a child. Let's come with our childlike faith to God. Just as Corey said, Lord, we believe, help our unbelief. Help us to know exactly who you've revealed yourself to be and tremble at the Lord as he has revealed himself. I love the example Isaiah provides in chapter six of his prophecy. He's in the temple and and the glory of the Lord is around him. The train of of the Lord's robe fills the temple and the first thing he does as he gazes upon the Lord is he steps back and he's like, I am a man of unclean lips. When's the last time you considered yourself a man or a woman of unclean lips? And if you haven't, it's because you have not stood before God and observed who he is. Know him. Know him. And in so knowing God, seek to identify, this is the second one, seek to identify your sins in these areas. Seek to identify your sins in these areas and trust the power of God to lead you through to repentance. We are self-centered, envious, and you're like, stop telling me, I can't. Individuals, we're greedy. We're only thinking about ourselves. You're like, I'm hungry, I know. I mean, we're constantly doing this. 
but we must trust the power of God to lead us to repentance, to put on the mind of Christ uh, who considered others. He considered us so much that we didn't even think equality with God something to be grasped. Ask God to reveal where your sin is because all of our individualism, all of that is just, it's just this waging war that is impossible for us to win and it's against a holy God. And so we are called to remember this. In fact, it's his mercy that we aren't crushed right now. And so turn to God. Ask God where your sin is in these areas today and, 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 and flush this out in your groups. And then finally in closing, consider others as Christ, as Christ did. We see in Mark 12, Matthew 22, that we are called to love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. First John tells us that we're able to love God because he first loved us. And then we're called to love each other as ourselves. And so think about what that looks like in your work, in your family. Think about what that looks like right here in the body of Christ. To love others, to love your enemies that speak against you, to bear burdens for each other, to love one another as Christ has loved us. That's what we are called to today. And trust that God cares for you and in his power and through the cross of Christ where love is perfectly demonstrated, we can see what sacrificial love looks like.